You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. And as always, I'm joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell. In our last episode, we started a brand new season that supplements our Sunday morning series at Cornerstone called How God Became King. And what we're doing is doing a deep dive on Jesus in his time on earth. We wanna study exactly what he did when he was on earth living his life. And we wanna see the perspectives of each gospel writer and figure out exactly how their perspective helps us first know Jesus better, but second, know how to be better Christ followers. As you listen to this podcast, we'd love for you to be a part of the conversation. If you're listening and have any questions you'd like to ask or any content that you think would be valuable to our discussion, we'd love to hear it. You can text those to 817-809-3040. We'll take all of the most applicable content and develop further and future conversations based around your questions. We had a great first episode of season two. Can't wait to continue this discussion in Cornerstone Conversations. Okay, so Bobby, we started up our very first episode of season two of Cornerstone Conversations. Now we are settling into really the only story that we have of Jesus in his adolescence, which I think is kind of interesting. You know, when we were talking about it and prepping for this podcast episode, you actually mentioned to me that there's very little content just in general across the gospel accounts of Jesus in his adolescence. I think we said Matthew's really the only one that talks about That's correct. about Ma- Jesus as a child, right? right? Last episode, we talked about him being dedicated in the temple, but that was him as an infant. Today's story really is the only account that we have of Jesus as a child. So an infant's not making their own decisions, obviously. Right. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple to dedicate him according to the law. And really the glimpse that Matthew's going to give us in chapter 2 is he gives us a glimpse of Jesus now making his own decisions. And I think we should preface this with, you know, in our tradition, we're so strong in our doctrinal stance on Jesus is the Son of God, the deity of Christ. Which is absolutely true. A hundred percent. And I guess that's the other side of the issue when the world says, oh, he's just a good man, just Mm -hmm. a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Our tradition wants to say to the world, no, he is God as a man who come to earth as a man and talk about his divinity, which is all correct, as you said. The problem is we have to balance that with He's also a man. He's also a man. Let's Both use... things can be true at the same time. Correct. But what's fascinating, I think what we're going to talk about today is you have to consider that Jesus was a child. Jesus was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And are there any truths that emerge from the biblical text about how he's acting as a teenager and how his decision-making goes as a kid and, you know, all of these kind of things. Yeah, Bobby, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old son. You have two fully grown sons now. And so I look to you for, you know, guidance in a lot of ways. You know, you disciple me and mentor me. And even just thinking about raising up my children, you know, I'm able to look to you as someone who's been there and who's done that. Can you just imagine being the father of the son of God. Well, as some people, I think, imagine that as easy peasy. Lemon squeeze. Yeah, I think because, because, want... Right, because Jesus did nothing wrong. So it must have been just so but, easy. But I think it's the opposite. Yeah. I mean, it's the other extreme. Now you have a child that never lies, is always right Yeah. in whatever he's doing. And they have other children who are not perfect. And so... 
I can only imagine all kinds of tension yeah. in the home. Yeah. And really, this is what the story is about. So for all of you listening, you have to get your minds around Jesus is 12. And now his parents are doing their normal rhythm mm -hmm. of earning a living, cooking dinner. And part of the rhythm of a Jewish life for a person of faith was to go observe the feasts. Three times a year, you have to then travel to Jerusalem. Mm. And the law says that all males are to present themselves three times a year in the temple. And Passover is one of the big three yeah. where the whole Jewish world converges on Jerusalem. And so the streets are packed. The hotels are packed. Everybody who's selling t-shirts and souvenirs is lined in the streets to make a windfall on the holiday, much the way. It's not the same, but much the way that America's economy booms at Christmas. It's commercialized. It's commercialized. Yeah. We're celebrating a religious event, but it's commercialized so that retail sales are off the charts, travels off the charts, yeah. restaurants are packed, grocery store shelves are, are you know being decimated by mm -hmm. people getting ready with hams and turkeys and, and yams and pies. And anyway, this is human nature. Yeah. And so Passover is this massive religious holiday that Joseph and Mary observe because they are faithful God followers and they're going up to Jerusalem to Passover. Matter of fact, you'll see in the text that it's very much a family event yeah. and families traveled together, much like you would have like a family reunion. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, everybody load your stuff up and let's all go to Jerusalem. It's much safer to travel in mass yeah. in a caravan type situation. Obviously they're either on foot or a donkey or something, but mm -hmm. mostly on foot moving down to Jerusalem. And so again, let's just kind of peel the layers here. What we know is that this is a very special person and the life of Jesus has a very divine mission attached to it as ours do too, but yeah. his in a unique way. And Jesus' life is framed by obeying the divine mandates of the Father. He is going to do the will of the Father. Yeah, and which is set up so beautifully from our last podcast episode where we talked about how Mary and Joseph were so obedient to the will of God. Right. And we're going to see that, again, just being a constant theme now in Jesus' own life as he decides to be faithful to his Father. So it, I can imagine there was some stress and tension. Yeah. God has committed his son to you as parents mm. and you have to provide for him, protect him, care for him. I don't think that was an easy task. No, I think it was incredibly, I, I think I could make the argument that this is two of the most trusted individuals in the history of the world yeah. that God looked down and said, I know you're not famous. You're, you know, we use the word peasants. They're just poor, common people in Israel. And God says, you two are so faithful. I'm going to trust my son to you mm -hmm. because I know you're going to do a great job parenting him. The problem arises when a child hits that preteen, teen time frame of life. And now they're ready for independence. They're ready to make some of their own decisions. And now conflict begins to arise in every family, every human family, yeah. when kids can say, no, I don't like those clothes. No, I don't like this food. I want to go hang with my friends. Right. I have my, my own will and my own personality is coming to bear in the family now. And every family 
has some conflict when their children get to this level of independence. So this is the story we're at in the story of Jesus. And I guess before we get to really him in this, you know, the temple moment that we're about to talk about, we have to set up a little bit of context about what the family looked like. You know, you're talking about how this is all a family ordeal. We're talking a lot about, you know, not just the fact that Jesus had siblings, but the fact that Mary and Joseph were real imperfect people who were trying to parent a very perfect child. There's a lot of contextual issues that have to set up the story of what kind of home that Jesus was brought in. Right. Right. You have to imagine when we get to the story in a moment, there are stair-step siblings. Mm-hmm. Mary and Joseph have a whole train of kids yeah. now following them. Their names are listed in scripture. You've got at least five kids, at least, yeah. in tow going. And let me step back even again further. We talked about the Magi mm-hmm. and their role in coming to the home in Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. They don't arrive at Christmas. They arrive a couple of years later. So they're not really Christmas characters. We talked about that, but yeah. you know, we go ahead and tag them onto the Christmas story. There. I, I think we romanticize the fact they bring gifts. And so we want it to be part of the Christmas story because it it makes sense in our cultural narrative of what Christmas is. So really, it's not it's not an end cap on the Christmas story. It's very much uh, an opening to the childhood of Jesus. We all want to ask ourselves as we're reading the gospel accounts and Matthew in particular on this subject, what is Matthew trying to say to us by the arrival of the Magi? Why are Magi coming to Bethlehem? Well, we know why, because when they ride into Jerusalem trying to find Jesus, they say, where is he that is born the king of the Jews. And this is the story that you and I contend that the Gospels are telling. Mm -hmm. They are all setting Jesus up, not just to die on the cross. None of the Gospel writers expected Jesus to die on the cross. They expected him to be the King of Israel. Mm And he was the king, but the story has a lot of twists and turns, and we'll get to those. So when the Magi arrive, they're looking for a king. They certify, you know, we use kind of an Americanism with the congregation to explain this. It's kind of like the Electoral College or Mm -hmm. Congress or the Secretary of State certifies an election. We already know the outcome, but until it's official, it's not official. And so when the Magi come and bow the knee, and certify Jesus, they're saying, we recognize as ancient Eastern powers that God has done something, is doing something right now. And we know the promise of a king all the way back to Daniel, 500 years before Christ, a little more than 500 years. And this tradition has been passed down to the Magi. We've been looking for this king. The king has come. We're here to stamp our approval on it and let's make this official. Okay. Mm -hmm. They take him and we already know about the dedication where the prophet Anna and Simeon have said, this is the Messiah we've been looking for at the dedication. Now the Magi bend the knee and say, we're honoring him as a king. Okay, so now that we've got that story, the Magi aren't just Christmas characters. They serve two really big functions in the story. And a very practical function. One is to certify Jesus as king to the whole world. And the other one has to do with finances. Yeah. It has to do with something very practical to life, ministry, making disciples, mission work. 
it all requires resources. Mm -hmm. And we often talk about, okay, God has a plan for our life. And that may be invigorating, it's exciting, but it's also scary because we don't know how. How will I pay for this? Yeah. Whether that's you know, a pastor going to a, a seminary and preparing or moving your family around the world or around America to where God wants you to be ministering. Mm-hmm. For example, you and I are podcasting right now from Asia. We're in a very <laughs> remote situation right yeah. now. And we're in a foreign world. And we've got delegates landing probably in about 45 minutes coming to meet with us so we can train them. Mm -hmm. The mission giving of Cornerstone, it takes resources to be able to expand this ministry to the ends of the earth. So what's often overlooked is when God has divine mandates for us, he has a will for our life. And part of growing in your faith and part of growing to spiritual maturity is understanding that God provides the means to do his will. Mm -hmm. If he's asking you to do something, then he understands you're going to need some resources. Yeah. That's not lost on him at all. Yeah. And I think the story of Jesus and the Magi is one of, you know, if you came to me and said, you know, Pastor Bobby, I'm so nervous about how I'm going to. You know, I know God wants me to do this, but I don't know how it's going to work out. I would probably take you to this story and say God had planned to help Mary and Joseph through their poverty take care of the Son of God in ways that would have blown their mind. They would have never considered having wealth at all. They were just poor. Yeah, well, even just as a callback to episode one of this season, we talked a lot about how even the sacrifice that they bring at Jesus' temple dedication was a sign of their poverty. Two turtle doves instead of a lamb. Right. Let me read a piece of the text from Matthew. Matthew two eleven. on coming to the house, the Magi arriving at the house in Bethlehem, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures, keyword. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever you imagine to just in my mind, I'm thinking pirate treasure. I don't know why, but I think of <laughs> Probably it. Probably not pirates, but yeah. But, but you know what I'm saying, a treasure yeah. chest and you, open that treasure chest and then there's yeah. all this, you know, gold coins. I think like a, obviously not Santa Claus, but like a Santa Claus bag strapped to the, the camel is what I've got in my <laughs> yeah, head. You all know? this stuff just in Just a it. giant sack just yeah. filled and overflowing with, yeah. you know, rubies and diamonds and gold coins. And they're going to list for some of the treasure. I don't know that this is a complete inventory. Mm-hmm. In our tradition, there are a lot of sermons that are preached about the Magi. Well, let me read the rest of the text. They opened the treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so that'll get talked about a lot mm-hmm. if people want to preach about the wise men at Christmas. And they'll you know, way over apply each of uh, these The myrrh gifts. means this, and the frankincense means this, and the gold means this. You yeah, know, gold's that, for a king, and frankincense or myrrh speaks of death, and you know, right. and all this kind of stuff. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe that's a part of it. You know, we know that there's lots of allegorical pictures in a lot of the Bible, but there is a much more practical reason for these gifts. And the practical reason is Mary and Joseph now, child is two, Jesus is two, ish. Herod still is not satisfied about this whole thing. He's already assembled the death squad, told the Magi, when you get there, bring me word because, you know, sinister look, Mm -hmm. I want to come and worship him also. He doesn't. He's going to execute any kid that is a rival 
king being born. The Magi are onto his crazy and they're not going to tell Herod where the child is. So they end up sending an execution squad down to Bethlehem to kill all the children. But the point is right before the execution squad, I mean, this would actually make a fantastic thriller novel right before the execution squad gets to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary are warned in a dream at night and God says to Joseph in the dream, angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, take the child, grab your go bag and get out of town right now. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, go all, don't just get leave Bethlehem, go all the way to another country, several countries away. Yeah. Go to Egypt with the child. You're going to have to hide out until Herod dies. And Joseph does that. Okay. He's so obedient. So if God appeared to you in a dream tonight, said your family's in danger, this is God's will for your life, pack your bags, get out of town in the dark of night tonight, I need you to go, gosh, what's two, well, Texas is so big, it doesn't matter, but you know, I need you to go to Guatemala tomorrow Mm -hmm. or tonight. Well, you're going to have to get to the airport, Mm -hmm. money. You're going to have to buy plane tickets, money. You're going to have to travel with very lightly and with children, with children. Yeah. Okay. In their case, three with a child. I mean, Mary yeah. Joseph and a child and go to another country. You're going to have to pay taxes mm-hmm. in our context. That looks like passports and visas. And yeah. I, I just want to and with, with, with each of these things, it's like another reason not to be obedient. Oh yeah, you and, can just and say, even understand or partially so. obedient. Or how partially about, how about obedient. we just go to Hebron or about, back just, to Nazareth? Let's or, just do a Zoom call instead. Yeah, and, and so kind of thing. this is you know you're like, how am I going to care for God's son and protect him? Well, the answer is treasures. Mm-hmm. The Magi arrived, and we could say it this way, just in the nick of time. But yeah. we know there is no such thing with God. God sent them on a journey long. I mean, they didn't just jump on a jet and land in Bethlehem. Right. They're traveling by horseback across the Middle East. The point is God had this thing all orchestrated, planned, and they're bringing wealth. When they honor Jesus as the king, they open treasures of gold. Mm -hmm. They present myrrh and frankincense. So let's say it this way. These are all extremely valuable in the context of first century Middle East. They are perfumes, they are ointments, and they are gold. And they are cross-cultural as well. The wise men are coming from the Far East. They're not going to have just the currency of the land. They're going to have cross-culturally valuable goods. That's correct. Gold works anywhere. Yeah. This myrrh and frankincense can be sold. Just to put things in context, when it comes to Christmas time, at least one person in my family of four will ask for perfume, cologne, something Mm -hmm. for Christmas. And they've got great taste yeah. and they will ask for something and I'll go research it. And I'm like, you know, a hundred dollars, you know, for two ounces, are you nuts yeah, right. or something like that? And then I'll end up buying it, you know, but yeah. just to put things in context, you know, if you're going to go buy a bottle of something for your wife, Chanel number no. five or something, you're going to throw down a hundred bucks. Yeah. That little bottle of perfume ointment is incredibly expensive. And you and I are, you know, moving, moving through Asia right now, we can find that same perfume on the streets of the city we're in right now. Yeah. It's cross-cultural. 
Right. It's expensive. It's valued. So the point is when the Magi bring the gifts and open them there in the living room of Mary and Joseph and bow down and worship Jesus and certify him, they have given highly liquid assets, yeah, assets exactly. that can be used cross-culturally, can be turned into cash of any country. Mm-hmm. They don't have to worry about anything. They are rich overnight. Again, rich may be, I I don't know how much treasure we're talking. It's not quantified. Mm -hmm. But when you use the word treasure, it does send a message, doesn't it? Oh, very clear message. This isn't like $5. Yeah. This is enough money to flee to a foreign country, stay there for as long as necessary. And start a new life. Until God says, I'm going to move you back and you're going to be, you know, when he gets there, he has to set up a new business. Mm -hmm. He has to buy new tools. He's a carpenter. He needs a table saw and a new, you know, a new cordless drill. And he's got to buy all of his stuff. He's got to reestablish a living for his family. And so God has already seen that yeah. and he's already given it to them. And then God says, okay, now, now you can flee. And just to me, the timings, they're not asked to flee before the Magi come. Yeah. Right on time, God's resources arrive. And so when God says go, they say, okay, God, we can go. You, you've taken care of everything. Which what a great takeaway, even for us, just that when God asks us to do something, he's going to make it happen. He's going to give us what we need and provide the means to be able to accomplish exactly what his will and purpose for us is. In the context of, you know, our church family and our friends listening to this podcast, you know, we're we're challenging our people our church family to step out by faith and follow God, you know, to give a portion of their wealth and tithes and offerings every week, Mm -hmm. to give even beyond that to missions and to other projects and to step out by faith and make disciples and to, you know, be challenged. Don't take an easy path here. Don't live necessarily a life of ease and luxury. God has blessed you Let's be all in for for the mission of God. And when you challenge people very aggressively, like we do, I challenge our people to be Mary and Joseph kind of people. Mm -hmm. We also then need to comfort everyone and say, while none of us can predict what's going to happen this year. I mean, we've just been through a couple of wild years where you couldn't have predicted COVID, what, what the world would bring and having that little trauma in our lives that we just lived through this is it's great for us to again let god wrap his arms around us and say while you have no idea what's coming in the future god does yeah and we can predict this with a hundred percent certainty whatever happens god will be with us yeah and the mechanics are already in place he's already working things out now that will benefit us in the future yeah And he's already setting up a solution to a problem that we don't even know is coming. That's correct. But when the problem comes, the solution will have already been formulating and working towards fruition for us. That's beautiful. That's That's incredible. Right there. That's how majestic he is. Well, let's take it a step further now because Mary and Joseph now, just you already prefaced this, having to be parents to the son of God, this is their firstborn. Again, they weren't parents before this. So I can say this as a parent and anyone who's a parent will understand this. You can read all you want to read until you think you're an expert on parenting. Yeah. And then you have your own kid. And then you really know. And you will. It's a trial by fire of how to deal with a a crying baby at night, all night. And what works for one family will not work for your family. What one person found to be very successful will not be successful. And it's just... 
is impossible to prepare without actually having experience. Nowhere in the texts, and we have to assume these stories are passed down by Mary to the gospel writers as they interviewed her and got this information from Mary. Mm -hmm. And I say Mary because we believe Joseph dies before Jesus is an adult man. Uh, He's no longer in the picture, but he obviously in this part of the story is still alive. But when they, the traditions and the stories came to, you know, the gospel writers. I would have loved to hear this told by Mary. Oh yeah. You know, where when God asked us to be parents and I'm just a teenager and maybe a little naive to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, Joseph, we can't mess this up. Now the other kids are going to be ours, but this was the son of God. Right. Okay. We can't mess this up. And we've got to, we, you know, the, and the thing is when God asked them to be parents of his son, he didn't give them a parenting outline to follow. No. He knew that it would be a trial by fire for them Yeah. and they would learn as they go, but they had the right character. They had mm-hmm. the right quality of faith. And so God says, I trust you and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. The thing is, none of us have a roadmap for how our life is going to go. We take it one step at a time and God is always sufficient one step at a time to help us through the event we're dealing with now. Yeah. And I think if there's a, on this theme, if there's, you know, some sound advice that runs really all the way through scripture, it's just worry about today. Don't get too wrapped up in the 20 things that could go wrong tomorrow. Right. Your father loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. And in this context, God simply said to them, I need you to get to Egypt as quick as you can. You've got money now. You know, your child is the son of God. If you had any doubts, he's been certified as the king of Israel, but rival kings will seek for his life. And so now there's a whole twist. When God told them, I want you to be parents of my son, he didn't tell them that somebody would be trying to kill his son every five minutes. Right. That adds a whole new twist to parenting. I just can't even imagine. No. And you can just imagine the... Well, because they have heightened responsibility too. You know, obviously... Jesus was going to be protected, you know, obviously Jesus, divine protection, it's good. It's going to work out. But also like knowing that God has entrusted you with his son, you're going to take that role very seriously. There's a lot of responsibility. Do you imagine that the toddler Jesus ever fell and skinned his knee? I'm sure he did. I don't know of any kid that hadn't fallen and hit the coffee table with his head. Yeah. Have any of your kids had stitches yet? Not stitches, but... Okay. You know, there's been been some drama. Broken bones happen, cuts, stitches, little boys. Right. You know, you're you're raising two and I raise two. There's going to be some bloodletting at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And... Well, because that's not an ethical or moral right or wrong. It's just life. There's little boys skin their knees sometimes. So, but can you imagine being Mary or Joseph when Jesus gets near the edge of a cliff or when Jesus is doing something dangerous in Mm -hmm. childlike behavior? Can you imagine their anxiety when they pick him up and blood's dripping down his knees? Yeah. What have we done? What have we done? It's the son of God. He's going to find different parents, you know what I'm saying? You know? And really, this is the story we're getting to now. Mm -hmm. They're going to flee down to Egypt. Again, as an act of obedience. They were told to go. And the way the text reads, it's just very immediate. You know, he gets the dream, get out of here. And the line says, so he got up, took the child and his mother and left. So Luke grabs the story and he fast forwards things. Okay. At least a decade. Yeah. Because again, there's not much material on the child, Jesus. This is really the only story we have. Mm -hmm. 
And because again, that's not the story they want to tell is God becomes king. Yeah. So they're not going to focus on, you know, teenage speeding tickets and, you know, prom dates and what he did at homecoming. That's not the story they're telling. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get him to adulthood as quickly as they can in the story. But this information is fascinating nonetheless. Luke says it this way, Luke 240, and the child grew. So this is his finger on the fast forward button now. Mm -hmm. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. So now the child grew and became strong. Now there's a lot we can read into that. Yeah, well, and what's funny is this is a verse that's taken out of context so often and applied to everyone's child. And I'm sorry if this is you, if in your child's nursery you have, you know, on the wall, Luke 2.40 that says the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. It's a beautiful verse. Yes. It's about Jesus, not about your child. Right. It's great if our kids were, you know, growing in yes. this flourishing manner. But yeah. you're right. It's very specific to Jesus. And so that brings us to this thing. He grew and he became strong. So here are the challenges of parenting Jesus. A lot of the modern writers... You know, this is one of the dangers of the World Wide Web where you can get information and articles. Mm-hmm. It's got blessings and curses. Yeah. And one of the curses is if you Googled stories of Jesus, mm-hmm. you'll see so many writers saying, well, you know, until Jesus is baptized, he really doesn't know who he is. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't know he's the son of God. And he really doesn't know he has a divine mandate, you know, not until he's an adult man and he starts his ministry. But that's just not the way the Gospels read. I'm sorry. They're telling a very different story about a kid who's crowned king at two and everyone's trying to kill him Mm -hmm. because they see him as a rival king. Right. They wouldn't do that if he was just a kid. They're not trying to kill him for what? heresy, sedition, blasphemy. They're trying to kill him because he's a rival king. Mm -hmm. Now that sets the story up to tell you the gospels are not just, here's how Jesus died on the cross so you can fly away to heaven. Mm -hmm. That is not the story of the gospels in the New Testament. The story is we've been waiting for a king for all these thousands of years. The king has arrived. Now watch how the world treats the king when he comes. They see him as a rival. Mm -hmm. So he's fled to Egypt and they're going to eventually go back to Nazareth when Herod dies and the Archelaus, the son, reigns in his stead. But rather than going to Bethlehem, which is kind of their, you know, birthplace, hometown, family town, they go back up north into Galilee to Nazareth, which is really where Mary and Joseph had been living prior to the birth of Christ, where their courtship and their original business was. And Jesus is going to grow up in in Galilee. And that's prophetic because the Old Testament prophets talk about Galilee as being the place where the Messiah would come. And that's a whole nother podcast probably. But think about this now. The child grew strong. The challenges of parenting are that Jesus knew who his real father is. Mm. And so I'm going to take this to a counseling moment. I've had to counsel a lot of parents who have his kids, her kids, and now they've, there's a blended family and then they have kids together. So his, hers, and theirs become a blended family and it's not easy blending a family. And 
when the stepmother tries to correct the kids or the stepfather tries to correct her kids. Oh, you're not my dad. I've had to sit with kids and families and who are teenagers and say, you know, they're trying to, my stepmom or stepdad's trying to set boundaries and discipline me. And that's not really my dad. Okay. That's a real life human event right there. Yeah. Now just imagine Jesus and Joseph and Mary and I'm not saying that Jesus ever said to Joseph, Joseph, you're not my dad. You know, don't tell me what to do. But there's the underlying tension. Where he knows. Jesus knows who his father is. Mm -hmm. And it's not Joseph. Joseph is his earthly parent. He respects Joseph. He submits to Joseph. But the text says he grew and became strong. And as Jesus grew and gained independence, knowing he's on a divine mission from heaven to become Israel's king, that created some parenting challenges for Mary and Joseph. Yeah. Again, I think we've over-romanticized both the Christmas story all the way through mm -hmm. where we're thinking that, I'm just trying to think, away in a manger, yeah. a little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, the cattle are just gently lowing. And Jesus never cries as a child. Yeah. Are you kidding? Silent night. Are you kidding me? Yeah. He's a human baby. What do you mean he doesn't cry? Because again, crying is not a sinful activity. No. Crying is not on a moral or ethical spectrum. How else is he going to tell Mary and Joseph he's got a poopy diaper? Right. He's going to cry. He's, he's hungry. Exactly. I'm going to cry. And so again, he's human. And that's the hardest part, at least for me, mm -hmm. coming from my tradition to wrap my mind around, which is really why we wrote the Magi sermons and these kind of lessons yeah. is to get us back in touch with the drama involved in being God, but being human mm -hmm. and the drama of trying to parent a child that is God in your child's body. Mm -hmm. So here's the kind of the big questions. When the text says Jesus grew and became strong, are we imagining then that Jesus is a mild-mannered, super-compliant child? Or are the text saying that Jesus is gaining independence? He's incredibly wise. He's incredibly strong. Okay, was this like Samson strong or is this like strong-willed strong? Yeah, these are all good questions. So I, in, at least in my reading of the text, am understanding that Jesus is not this super compliant just child. subservient completely you know meek and mild right yes mother yes father i'm not saying he's sinner and i'm not saying he's disrespectful i'm saying the kid's brilliant he's on a mission from god mm -hmm. and i don't know how in the world i'd parent him yeah with that he's sinless so you think well he's going to be easy to raise as you said he's never going to use inappropriate language never going to tell a lie yeah but he's never going to be wrong right Again, maybe it's just because of our human experience parenting. Kids lie. Yeah. Kids do wrong. And so I, I don't know what this is like. Well, I again, mean, you just imagine the resentment of the other kids, you know? Hopefully Mary and Joseph never said as parents, who broke the window? You know? Jesus did it. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine? No. Yeah. And Mary's like, no, Jesus didn't do yeah. it. Jesus, tell me the truth. Who did it? Who did it? Yeah. I know you know. Yeah. Did he rat him out? 
I don't know. I don't I think don't he know. did. I mean, he, he was filled with wisdom. Well, so. I wonder too what resentment, because I sense some of this in the Gospels, mm -hmm. that the other siblings do resent him a little bit. Yeah, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you go show yourself in Jerusalem and, you know, and be who you claim to be. If you're the yeah. king of Israel, come on, I know we're dirt poor peasants from Nazareth, but if you're the king of Israel, run on down there and claim the throne. Yeah. They're kind of saying stuff like that to Jesus along the way. Yeah. So I assume there's some resentment. Hopefully Mary and Joseph never said to the other kids in the parenting process, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't get in the kind of trouble you other kids. I don't know. I don't know. What, just, I'm, I'm mesmerized by what the home would have been like. Well, we know too, because there are other siblings and we really don't hear from most of them. We really don't know what their lives look like. We don't know what they do. And I say that to say, they didn't really make much of a mark on the gospel story. No. The other well, story. that's not the story they're telling. Again, right. they're telling Jesus' story. Right. And, you know, we know his, I think all of his siblings eventually believed on him. I would imagine so. I mean, we, we know. You'd have to. Jude's writing the book of Jude. And James is writing the book of James. Yeah. And we know his brothers are involved mm -hmm. in the mission after the resurrection, yeah. which is a whole nother fascinating story. But so you've got Jesus as this strong-willed kid. And, you know, just a bit of parenting advice to anyone who's in this stage right now. If you want to know how to parent a strong-willed child with an equally strong-willed parent is the answer. It means, well, you've got some pretty strong-willed kids. I had at least one really strong-willed kid. Yeah. And you've got you have to, to outwill them. You've got to outwill them. Yeah. And you have to set some interesting boundaries and, you know, enforce those. And the parents have to rise to the challenge yeah. of meeting a strong-willed child. And be consistent in that. Yeah. And follow through with it. Again, so now you're getting insight into who Mary and Joseph are. Right. I think Mary and Joseph are two of the bravest humans who ever lived. They'd have to be. Two of the most bold risk takers who ever lived in history. Well, because again, when God is deciding who is capable of raising my child, yeah, who has the courage, who has the bravery, who has the will yeah. to do this job, he chose Mary and Joseph. Joseph doesn't say a whole lot in the scripture, but God has given his son to Joseph. They're going to be hunted like fugitives by an insane king. Yeah. Who will kill anyone in his path to kill Jesus. Well, that to me now, I'm thinking like, you know. I mean, Joseph has to be a little bit Liam Neeson and taken. That's the kind of guy. I mean, yeah. this is what I'm thinking. He's got to be a very interesting guy mm -hmm. and resourceful and watchful and aware and all of these things. He's going to start this business at least two or three times in the story. Mm -hmm. He leaves the business in Nazareth, restarts it in Bethlehem for several years, leaves the business in Bethlehem and restarts it in Egypt for maybe a decade, leaves the business in Egypt, restarts at Nazareth again. Yeah. And sometimes you and I are crying about, you know, well, I had to start over from square one. Listen. Like, then you're in fine company. Yeah, you're in the company of Joseph and Mary. They had yeah. to start over at least three times, maybe more. Mary ends up, we think, near the end of her life in Ephesus with the Apostle John. So she's clearly traveling with the expansion of Christianity into Asia Minor, maybe into Europe at some point. Yeah. So, yeah, this is what life looks like. And so now we've got a strong-willed child. We've got two incredible parents. Okay, at some point you're going to have conflict. Yeah. And so Jesus... Because as perfect as Jesus is, Mary and Joseph are not. No. And so there is a, this instance recorded in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus comes into conflict with Mary and Joseph. It was inevitable. Now it's happened. Let me read the text. Luke 2.41. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem 
for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. Hmm. Key statement, but they were unaware of it. Yeah. They're traveling with a big family company. This is a caravan. Caravan. Yeah. And it's just like a family reunion that walks from one city up back up to the other city. Yeah. Now, it's a good, you know, Israel's not a big country, but this is like going from southern Israel all the way to northern Israel on foot. It's a yeah. trek. And they're like, okay, Paso's over. Let's go. Everybody saddle up. And they're heading north. Yeah. A whole family company. And they suppose Jesus is with his cousins. With the other kids, yeah. And they're all in the caravan together. There's a big group of us moving, but they were unaware that Jesus never left Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so the text tells us that, you know, obviously there are other kids. You've got this big family picture. And when they've traveled for a day's journey, they started counting heads. Mm -hmm. They're one day on foot out of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how many miles that is, but it's some significant miles on foot. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, you can walk a few miles. You're going to get tired quickly. In a it's, few, a few it's hours. It's going to wear you out. They're a day's journey out of Jerusalem. Let's assume they pull over on the south road and everybody pitches their tent. Let's rest here for the night. Yeah. Has anybody seen Jesus? Yeah. Uh, we're a kid short. Yeah. We've you got know? these pajamas, but no child to put them no in. No child to put them in. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And the child we're missing is the one God entrusted us to watch. Yeah. This is like losing your kid in Target. This is like leaving your kid at Walmart and going home and forgetting you took your kid to Walmart. Right. It's worse than that. This is like driving to Oklahoma City. <laughs> and leaving your kid at in, a Walmart there. In a Walmart yeah. in Oklahoma City and driving all the way back to Fort Worth and right. saying, one, two, three, four, five, six. Hey, we're a kid short. Everybody sound off. Oh, it's G. We left the Son of God. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? God, we are such terrible. Here's, here's what I can hear in the back. We're such terrible parents, Joseph. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mary, we're such terrible. God's going to kill us. Right. We've <laughs> lost his kid. Yeah. You know? And so they big U turn right back down. So a day away from Jerusalem, another day to get back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, and you have to imagine that they're going at a decent speed only because anytime you do anything, the return trip, you're ready to get home. Yes. You know, and this was a week long festival that they were just at. They were there for a week. They're doing the whole thing with the kids, with the family, everyone. So I'd imagine that they made it pretty far on that right. one day trek back home because they're ready to get home. So now when this happens in a real life scenario, when you find the kid you lost in Costco, Mm-hmm. And he's over getting the free snacks, you know, and you couldn't find him for 30 minutes and you're terrified and you're about to do an Amber Alert. Yeah. What's your reaction when you find the kid? Usually it's like, you know, you scared me to death. Don't you ever leave me again? You know, it's some form of a, a reprimand. Reprimand. It's yeah. a rebuke. Okay. And I'm sure they're equally terrified mm-hmm. knowing people want to kill him. Yeah. They're equally terrified and angry. Yeah. Okay. At Jesus for the situation. And when we find him, it depends on what condition he's in, Mm -hmm. how we're going to respond. Yeah. So Luke 2 46 says this, and after three days, so once they got to Jerusalem, it took them a whole other day to find him. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So after three days, they found him and they found him in the temple. Now this is what's really significant about when temple comes up, temple is Jesus domain now. Yeah. In one of the future sermons, we'll talk about Jesus as the living temple. Right. But temple for Israel is where God meets with man. 
So God in a man's body is naturally going to gravitate towards the temple where all the God events are centered. This is where the teaching is centered and where, you know, this is the spotlight of God in Israel. It's their thinking. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. And everyone who heard him, so he's not just listening. He's talking. He's talking. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answer. I love that the scripture tells us he was asking questions and he was answering them. And they were astounded it's by the answers. It's almost like he had questions that they couldn't answer. Yes. They, they, they were incapable of coming up with the right answer. And so he just answered the question that he asked. Minds are being blown. Yeah. Who is this? Because a lot of people want to think that Jesus is some obscure person who suddenly is on the scene. No, Jesus was a known quantity yeah. at some point. Child prodigy who could hold his own with the best theologians of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is when you fast forward the story and the adult Jesus shows up in the book of John, which we'll be talking about in just a couple of weeks. When the adult Jesus shows up in John, it's, oh, this guy again. He's back in the temple and he's causing a stir. And that's the scene we'll have in the opening chapters of John. I, at this point though, in the story, I have so many questions. (laughs) So for three days and nights, where did, he, where did he sleep? What was he eating? Yeah. Where did he sleep? I don't. I have no idea. Yeah. What did he eat? Yeah. Did he have a pocket full of money and he's like, you know, maybe the post Passover corn dog stand is still set up and he's yeah, got a waffle cake and a corn dog and some cotton candy. I don't know. I yeah. have so many questions too. Yeah. You know, when Mary finds Jesus, she says to him, basically, we're losing our minds. Yeah. Looking for you. Yeah. Here's some parental language that you'll learn. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? Staying behind and not telling anyone. Yeah. We're going insane mm-hmm. looking for you. Here's what Luke says. Luke 2:48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Mm-hmm. We've been tearing the world. But I think this word father... Yeah. may be a pivotal word in the conversation. No, for sure. Your father and I have been looking for you. Jesus responds. Here's this adolescent independence, though. Mm-hmm. Here's his answer. Why were you searching for me? Yeah, why? Now, that's something you would not tolerate your child saying to you. No. I have been tearing up Target looking for you. They've been announcing your name on the P. You know what I'm saying? The police are here looking for you. What were you thinking? Why did you do that? If you're a child, you know, if Levi said to you, well, why were you looking for me? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Why were you searching for me? But here's the follow-up. He doesn't leave it there. Did you not know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? In my father's house. I think he's playing on Mary's comment about your father and I were searching for you. And he's like, no, mom, love you. Joseph, love you. But I'm here for a mission, remember? Yeah. And I'm in my father's house. Let's not forget who my father is. And I'm very focused on a mission. Again, Jesus doesn't have to wait till he's 30 at the baptism. No, he's the son of God. And he's here mm-hmm. to be Israel's king. He already knows. He's already living it out. Yeah. And he's saying, I'm in my father's house. And I'm doing my father's business right now. And it was time for me to gain a little independence and let these people know mm-hmm. that there's a somebody on the scene now 
who can hold his own theologically with them. Matter of fact, I've got answers and questions they hadn't even dreamed of. Yeah. And I've already shaken up all their categories and all their questions and all their theology. And that's a good kind of a preamble to what's coming in the next couple of decades. Yeah. You know, one other observation that I have from this is Mary doesn't reprimand him for doing anything wrong. She's reprimanding him for their own reaction to it. Correct. She's not they're, saying they're terrified. Right, you they're, they're terrified. And I understand that, but I do appreciate that in this moment where Mary's really upset with Jesus, she's not upset at what he's doing. She's upset about how it made her feel. And I can prove what you're saying now. Again, Luke is writing this. Luke isn't here. Mm -hmm. Mary's here. Yeah. So Luke got this information from Mary. Right. Or secondhand, mm -hmm. but let's assume she, he got it from Mary. Yeah. That he said, I want to get this down. I want to get it down accurately. Mary, tell me about this. You know, is there any childhood story that you would like to tell me? And Mary's like, you know, there's one really pivotal moment. Okay. And here's what I said. What have you done to us? Mm -hmm. Why have you treated us this way? And I'll tell you what he said at 12 years old. Why were you searching for me? You knew I'd be about my father's business. Yeah. I think KJV says you knew I'd be in my father's house. And notice the next verse in Luke 2.50, but they did not understand what he had said to them. And Mary's now telling Luke, you know, when this happened, I didn't really understand what he was saying. I just thought he was being sassy. Yeah, he's being a 12 year old. Yeah. And I thought, okay, you know, he is a child prodigy. I mean, he is brilliant, mm -hmm. but he's son of God. But when he said that to me at the time, I didn't get it. But I just want to say this, you know, a lot of life is this. It's about tempering your reaction and your response because sometime later you'll see things differently. Yeah. This is so true in my life where I want to react really strongly sometimes. And later when I reflect, I realize, wow, I didn't really see the whole picture. I didn't really understand what was happening. Yeah, I, when you've like really gained that perspective. I'm glad I didn't blow somebody up over right. something I didn't understand. I would have been really in the wrong in that. Mm -hmm. And now Mary reflecting through Luke's pen, yeah. she's saying, you know, now it all makes sense. Yeah. You makes know, perfect sense. My wife, Erica, and I, we do a lot of premarital counseling with couples. Yeah. And one of the main things that we tell people is your spouse is not the villain in your story. So don't assume that they are. Yeah. You know, we have this default setting to just assume that we know exactly what someone's intentions are, that we know exactly what someone's yeah. doing. It's usually against us. We think everyone's out to get us. You know, our spouse is the villain. Our kids are the villain. All these people are, you know, trying and actively working against our own good. It's very rarely the case. It's very rarely the case. Such a good point. You know, in my life, Jeremy, I learned later. I wish I'd learned it earlier, but I learned later. Judge people by their actions, mm -hmm. but don't try to judge people by their intentions because you don't know their intentions. Right. You don't know if they're hurting. You don't know what they just went through. Mm -hmm. You don't know what their day, month, week, or year looks like. Yeah. And you may think, well, they did that to you know hurt me or something. They may not have. It's not even on the radar. Wasn't even on the radar. Yeah. It's and very so, rarely about you actually. Right. It's normally about something. Same thing happens. You know, if a kid at school is mean to my child, and Levi comes to me and says, you know, Dad, this kid was really mean to me. The default thing we tell Levi is, well, that says a lot more about what that kid's going through than what he said to you. Right. Because again, you can't assume anyone's intentions. No. And we have this, again, default setting. Where that we, we try to. That we try to. Yep. We think we know what everyone's wanting or what everyone's doing or what their intentions are. And normally, we're wrong. Yeah. And you know what? One way to deal with it is 
when in doubt about somebody's intentions, just ask them. Yeah. Just say, you know, this hurt me or this whatever offended me or this situation. Let's talk about this. What precipitated that? Yeah. And let them tell you where their head was. Yeah. Let them tell you where their heart was. And then you figure out intentions, you know, r really clearly. And it's very rarely maliciously minded. Correct. And that solves a whole lot. It's a very, very good uh, a point you bring out. And so Mary's looking at it and she's like, wow, I, at the time I didn't have the perspective to know that he wasn't just being a sassy. You know, the girl. crucifixion and the resurrection will sure put a lot of things into perspective for Mary. Yeah, right. And for everybody. And honestly. so then she's looking back on this moment, you know, what, what's yeah. a really important childhood Jesus story I can share? You know, there's one where I didn't have the perspective to know what was really happening. I say it this way. I didn't have the perspective my 12 year old had. Yeah. He was more on mission in that moment than I was. Well, because that's even a theme in the story. He knew things that the others didn't. Correct. And he's really saying he's not, I don't say he's not being sassy because I imagine Jesus as, I, you know, I like him a little sassy in my imagination. Sure. So maybe he's being, you know, a strong-willed and sassy, not being though disrespectful. Yeah. And Jesus is saying to his parents, I need to be here mm -hmm. doing this. It's Passover. There's never a moment like Passover when everyone religiously is together. Yeah. And I had the audience that I needed for this moment. Mm -hmm. And I needed to interject myself into some of these conversations that only happen at this time of year. Right. And so I needed to be doing this and really me here with these, you know, again, I, in my imagination, I've got Jesus 20 years later, he's going to be talking to Nicodemus. Yeah. Well, I imagine him as a 12 year old talking to a young Nicodemus right now. Mm. I imagine him talking to a young Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. I imagine him making a little bit of a debutante coming out right now right. where he's saying, you know, the King of Israel is here. And I, I want just to be on everybody's radar that God is still working in Israel. Mm -hmm. And I needed to be here doing this because I have a higher calling. This is why I became human and just become human, you know, to do carpentry work and catch fish and eat pizzas and wear Nikes. I became a human to be the king of Israel yeah. and I have yeah. a high calling and that it's a very important that I follow God's will for my life. There are divine mandates upon me. My time is limited and I needed to do this. And I think maybe another parenting takeaway for us to humanize, you know, I want to over apply it again, but we're not raising Jesus's at our home. I get that. He's a unique child, Yeah. but we are raising Christian children and God has a plan for their lives. Mm -hmm. And so as you raise two boys at home, you know, you have some designs and some desires on what you want them to become. Right. But you have to let that give way to what God wants them to become. Exactly. A lot of times because I am a pastor, people have asked me, what? No kid in ministry, you know, and I never know how to take that. Are you insulting me? Or are you saying I failed as a parent? Or yeah, you saying my children failed? Or my or... children are not godly. Yeah. They're wonderful, godly men. I never tried to say, I know God's ultimate plan for your life. Yeah. I wanted that to play out in a way that they discovered it as God revealed it again, one step at a time in their development. Yeah. God will reveal his will to each of our children. And it's our job as parents, not to insist that our kids do our will. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to taking out the trash, yes, 
But you can't say to your kid when they're 12, 13, 14, 16, 18, 20, you should be a surgeon. Uh, you should be a, yeah. you know, no, a you lawyer. Can't. It's impractical. Because then you're playing God. Mm -hmm. What you want to say is God has a plan for your life. Seek it. Yeah. Let me show you how to seek it. Let me show you how to be listening to God's voice. Let me show you how to be doing something within God's will until he shows you the next thing. Mm -hmm. And we are spiritual guides to our children, guiding them to find the path of God. Yeah. Let me use John the Baptist again, because he'll come up in our stories often as we enter the adult life of Jesus. John the Baptist's father was a priest. This is a privileged role. Yeah. His father is first introduced to us inside the holy place, burning incense in the temple. Yeah, sure. When John appears, he's wearing not priestly robes. He's wearing a camel hair coat. He's a wild man. Like Elijah, living out in the wilderness with the beasts, eating grasshoppers and wild honeybee honey out yeah. of a tree somewhere. Yeah. That's how it describes John the Baptist. Now, here's what I know. God's will for John's life was not to be a robed priest mm -hmm. doing the same thing everybody else is doing who's born into that privilege. Yeah. John went against his privilege. John was a prophet, and John was doing exactly what God's will was for his life. Yeah. He'll die young as well. He'll be beheaded in his late 20s, early 30s mm -hmm. after a very brief ministry that transformed Israel for the coming of Christ. Yeah. There's no way you can say his life was not successful, even though it was short, and it was perfectly within God's will for his life. And not at all what his parents would have imagined. And not at all what his parents would have imagined. That's right. So, you know, as parents, we also have to remember we are sinful. At some point, you will have to apologize to your kids for getting some things wrong. Oh, yeah. You're raising sinners. Mm-hmm. And so there will be conflict. Yeah. And you have to remember that the key to a Christian home is love. Love one another, forgive one another, mm -hmm. care for one another. Paul would say, submit to one another. Yeah. Let somebody else be right. You know, you do a lot of, as you said, marriage counseling. One of the things we tell people, you don't have to win every argument. No, because a lot of times it's a matter of preference, not a matter of right, right. or wrong. Right. And even if you're telling a story, you don't have to correct your spouse if they get the details wrong. Yeah, it doesn't no. matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters at the end of the day is love, yeah. respect, kindness. That's what builds a strong relationship. So, you know, I think this little vignette gives us uh, some insight into mission. Jesus as a 12-year-old is on mission. And if there's a takeaway, again, we're not Jesus, but if there's but a... We, but we are Jesus followers. If we're really going to claim that title for ourselves, we should see his example and want to follow it. And our divine vocation that we talk about to our church family all the time is being living images of God. Yeah. Well, I guess you said it correctly. We are supposed to be Jesus's. He is the living image of God. Yeah. And that's really what God created us to be and wants us to be. Mm -hmm. And so from this one aspect, Jesus lived an incredibly focused, intentional on mission life. Yeah. There's a takeaway for all of us. You know, no matter what your vocation is, be really intentional that I'm going to give God my whole heart. He comes first place in my life and whatever his mission is, I'm going to be on it. And if his mission is go and make disciples, then that's my mission. 
What a great statement to close this episode on because that is our mission. That is what God has called us to do. And as we follow Jesus' example, not just from this story, but from the stories of the entire series as we continue learning exactly how God became king, we're going to see that Jesus created an incredible model to replicate. We hope you enjoy listening to these conversations. We also hope that you can be a part of them. So as you listen, as you think, and as you do your own study, what we'd love for you to do is text us any questions you have or any feedback that you'd like us to consider. We'd love to take all of those comments and utilize them and integrate them into future podcast episodes. Text us at 817-809-3040. And we cannot wait to continue these Cornerstone Conversations.